June 18th, 2013, Miami, Florida. It's game six of the NBA Finals. The San Antonio Spurs are up three games to two on the defending champion Miami Heat. The Spurs are one win away from securing their fifth championship in the Greg Popovich, Tim Duncan era. The Spurs find themselves down three points with a minute and 30 seconds to go. The score, LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh's Miami Heat, 89, and Greg Popovich, Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili, Kawhi Leonard, Dewan Blair, Tiago Splitter, and Boris Diaw's Spurs, 86. When we last left off the San Antonio Spurs, they had just drafted Kawhi Leonard with the 15th pick in the 2011 NBA Draft. Coming off of a season in which the Spurs won 61 games, had the best record in the Western Conference, and lost to the 8th-seeded Memphis Grizzlies. During the 2012 season, the lockout shortened the year to 66 games. The San Antonio Spurs finished 50-16, and 16, the best record in the Western Conference for the second year in a row. The Spurs won the first two rounds of the playoffs by sweep, one against the Utah Jazz and one against the Los Angeles Clippers. In the conference finals, they faced the two-seeded Oklahoma City Thunder, led by a 23-year-old Kevin Durant, 22-year-old Russell Westbrook, and 21-year-old James Harden. The Thunder would upset the San Antonio Spurs in six games, advancing to the franchise's first NBA Finals since moving to Oklahoma City. It also prompted this famous interview between Ernie Johnson and Kevin Durant. Are you, uh, are you sure, you're sure you're only 23? Yeah, I'm 23. The following season, the Spurs would win 58 games, and finished with the second best record in the Western Conference. The only team ahead of them was Durant's Thunder. Oklahoma City and San Antonio were poised for a second consecutive Western Conference Finals matchup. Unfortunately, in the second round of the playoffs, Russell Westbrook broke his foot, and the Oklahoma City Thunder lost to an underdog Memphis Grizzlies team. The Spurs would sweep the Grizzlies in four games, advancing to the NBA Finals, against the Miami Heat, the team that beat the Oklahoma City Thunder in the 2012 NBA Finals. The Spurs won Game 1 of the Finals behind 21 points from Tony Parker. Parker finished the 2013 season as the Spurs' leading scorer over both Duncan and a second-year Kawhi Leonard. Parker made his second consecutive All-NBA second team. The three seasons between 2011 and 2014 are regarded as the best years of Tony Parker's career, and many people had felt Parker had surpassed Duncan as the true number one on the San Antonio Spurs, a title in which Kawhi Leonard would soon surpass Tony Parker for. The Miami Heat won Game 2, and in Game 3 Parker only scored 6 points, yet the San Antonio Spurs won by 36 following an NBA record 16 three-pointers in a finals game. Gary Neal, a shooting specialist off the bench, went 6-for-10 from 3, and Danny Green set a finals record with 7 three-pointers. Even though he and Ginobili were playing roughly the same number of minutes, Green was starting most games at shooting guard, with Ginobili coming off the bench as a 6th man specialist. 
Miami won Game 4 by 16 points. Then the Spurs won Game 5 by 10. Tony Parker had 26 points, and Tim Duncan had 12 rebounds in the game. The Spurs were one win away from the NBA championship. Which brings us all the way back to Miami Heat 89, San Antonio Spurs 86. One minute, 30 seconds to go. Now, unfortunately, I can't use the audio from this game due to copyright issues. At the same time, most of you probably know how the story goes. It was only nine years ago, and it's also probably the most famous shot in the 21st century NBA. One minute 30 to go. Tony Parker, three-point basket. Miami 89, San Antonio 89. 58 seconds left. Tony Parker, two-point basket. San Antonio 91, Miami 89. 47 seconds. Miami Heat turnover. Manu Ginobili fouled on ensuing fast break. 37 seconds. Manu Ginobili hits two free throws. Spurs, 93. Heat, 89. 28 seconds. LeBron James turnover. Manu Ginobili fouled. Makes one of two free throws. San Antonio Spurs, 94. Miami Heat, 89. 20 seconds. LeBron James makes three-point basket. San Antonio Spurs, 94. Miami Heat, 92. 19 seconds to go. Heat foul, Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard makes one out of two free throws. We'll talk more about this in episode three. Timeout, Miami Heat. Greg Popovich subs Tim Duncan, who had 30 points and 17 rebounds, off the floor. Entering game, Boris Diaw. Proceed with second-guessing decision for the remainder of your life. 11 seconds to go. LeBron James misses three-pointer. Offensive rebound by Chris Bosh. Pass into the corner to Ray Allen. Ray Allen, three-point basket. San Antonio Spurs, 95. Miami Heat, 95. Game goes to overtime. Miami Heat win, 103-100. Series tied 3-3, winner go home game 7 in Miami. After the devastating game 6 loss, the San Antonio Spurs all went to eat at an Italian restaurant called Il Gabbiano in Miami. Players were inconsolable. There were people crying left and right. Everyone was devastated. They had a championship in their grasp, up five points with 20 seconds to go, a near insurmountable lead by NBA standards. As Manu Ginobili recalls it, Greg Popovich went to every single table, spoke to players individually, cried, listened, and let them be human. Real humans with real feelings, real emotions, and real pain. In 2022, Ginobili retold the story of that night to ESPN. Quote, It was almost the championship won, but Pop's phrase was, Win it together, lose it together. Man's gotta eat. On episode two, we're going to take a deep dive into Greg Popovich. How one of the great leaders in all of professional sports could oversee 25 years of success. 
how he could turn one of the worst nights in these players' professional lives into the fondest memories they've had of Popovich over 20 years. We'll discuss his journey to get to San Antonio, leadership lessons over 25 years, and set the stage for the final season of the dynasty in 2018. This is the fall of the Spurs dynasty. Episode 2, Greg Popovich. Greg Popovich was born on January 28th, 1949, in a small town called East Chicago, Indiana. Popovich is the son of Eastern European migrants who moved to the United States sometime in the 1940s, although the exact date is still unknown. Popovich's father, Raymond, was born in Serbia during the 1920s, and his mother, Catherine, was originally from Croatia. Very little is known about the Popovich family or Greg's childhood. When Popovich was 11 years old, Raymond and Catherine divorced, and Catherine moved Popovich to a small town called Maryville, Indiana. Maryville is located just about an hour outside of Chicago, which is the city where two years before Popovich was born, famed basketball coach Mike Krzyzewski was born to Polish-American immigrants. In 1970, the first year that the census recorded data for Maryville, the population of the city was just under 16,000 people. During their high school years, both Krzyzewski and Popovich would become standout basketball stars in each of their respective communities. After high school, Krzyzewski enrolled at the Armed Forces Academy, and Popovich would enroll at the Air Force Academy. Mike Krzyzewski would go on to be an assistant coach at Army under famed basketball coach Bobby Knight. In 1980, Krzyzewski was hired as the head coach at Duke University. Forty years later, Krzyzewski would retire as the winningest coach in the history of college basketball. Playing in 13 Final Fours and winning five national championships during his 41 years at Duke. Bringing up the story of Mike Krzyzewski is important in talking about Greg Popovich because both of them follow these archetypal 20th century American success stories. Krzyzewski and Popovich were born after World War II to Eastern European migrants, at the time the only kind of migrants who were being accepted by the United States. Popovich and Krzyzewski used sports and the military as a way to achieve economic mobility. Between the end of World War I in 1919 and the end of the Vietnam War in 1974, the United States was defined by massive economic growth. In the aftermath of the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, and later Dwight D. Eisenhower invested billions of dollars into the economy by creating social programs that helped low-income Americans. The United States government was helping to fund food housing, jobs, education, and health care, all through different government social programs. One of the largest industries the United States invested in all of this was through the military. The United States offered free education to veterans through its program known as the GI Bill. They offered free housing and low-cost health care to veterans as well. They even created hundreds of thousands of jobs through what is known as the military-industrial complex. These types of industry jobs involved building ships and planes and infrastructure and bombs and weapons for the United States military. 
The financing of war grew to be so big during this period that during his 1960 farewell address, former President Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was himself a military general in World War II, warned about the growing expanse of the military-industrial complex. of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Investing billions of dollars into social programs that helped people get jobs, food, health care, and housing were incredibly effective in lifting hundreds of thousands of people out of poverty. Krzyzewski and Popovich are two of these stories that are archetypal 20th century American success stories. Unfortunately, one of the great failures of this time period is that black Americans, women, and immigrants were excluded from receiving any sort of benefits from these programs. If you were a white American man, these programs were very effective ways of improving your economic outlook. The social programs of the United States between 1919 and 1974 were incredibly effective ways to help stimulate the economy and increase economic mobility, while at the same time perpetuating America's problem of economic inequity. As we mentioned before, in 1966, Popovich graduated from high school and enrolled at the United States Air Force Academy. Popovich would receive free education and be able to play college basketball on the Air Force team. Popovich would then owe the military five years of service after his time at the Air Force had been completed. Popovich played on the Air Force basketball team for all four seasons of college, and by his senior year he was nominated as team captain. During his time at the Air Force Academy, the dean of his school was a man named General Robert McDermott. McDermott will be important later in the story, but for now, just know that McDermott had a daughter named Betsy, and Betsy's best friend, from age 8 onward, was a girl named Erin Conboy. Erin's father, Jim, was an athletic trainer at the Air Force Academy, later serving as the head football coach for Air Force. Erin had grown up in Colorado Springs her entire life, and she attended Colorado State University during the same time of the late 1960s. Through Betsy, Erin was introduced to Greg Popovich. After both of them finished school in 1970, Popovich and Convoy began to date, even as Popovich was deployed out to Eastern Europe. After Popovich spent three years touring in Eastern Europe, he was requested back to the Air Force Academy by his head basketball coach, Hank Egan. Egan wanted Popovich to continue serving active duty in Colorado Springs while working part-time as an assistant coach for the basketball team. It was a way for Popovich to remain in basketball while serving in the military and so that he and Aaron could be back together again. When Popovich concluded his military service in 1975, he and Aaron finally made plans to get married, which they did in 1976. Popovich continued to work as an assistant coach for the Air Force Academy until 1979, when he was hired as the head basketball coach at a Division III school called Pomona and Pitzer. 
Pomona and Pitzer was actually two different schools that had a joint athletic department. The schools were located approximately 30 miles east of Los Angeles, up near the San Gabriel Mountains. The population in 1980 was 31,000 people, which was a 300% increase from where the town was just 20 years prior. The two schools combined had roughly the same attendance as a large high school. Nonetheless, it was a coaching job where Popovich could begin experimenting with many of the lessons he had learned under Egan over the past six years. It was also a place where Aaron and Greg could plant roots and raise their two newborn children, their son Mickey, who at the time was two, and their daughter Jill, who was just three months old when Popovich took the job and they moved to California. During Popovich's first season at Pomona Pitzer, they finished 2-22. and 22. The following season, they finished 10-15 and 15 with a 3-9 and nine conference record in some conference called the Southern California Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. Two years later, in 1983, Pomona Pitzer had a winning record for the first time, going 12-11. and 11. Two years after that, in 1985, Pomona Pitzer finished 7-5 in conference play. And in 1986, Pomona Pitzer won their first Southern California Intercollegiate Athletic Conference championship, and they advanced to the semifinals of the NCAA Division III championship. It took Greg Popovich six years as an assistant coach and seven years coaching at a Division III school before he actually had any kind of postseason success. During his time at Pomona Pitzer, Greg Popovich had formed a relationship with then University of Kansas coach and future NBA champion Larry Brown. After the 1986 run, Popovich took a one-year sabbatical from coaching at Pomona Pitzer to go coach for free under Larry Brown at the University of Kansas. Popovich viewed that time of his life as a learning opportunity to, for him to grow as a coach. There were no paid positions available on the University of Kansas staff, and Popovich wanted to retain his job at Pomona Pitzer. Popovich returned to California the following year and finished with a 7-19 and record. Following the 1988 season, Larry Brown left the University of Kansas to take the head coaching job of the San Antonio Spurs. Many of Brown's top assistants had either decided to stay at Kansas or take other jobs outside of the Spurs. Brown hired Popovich to be one of his assistant coaches for the Spurs beginning in 1988. Remember back in episode one when we talked about David Robinson and Terry Cummings and Rod Strickland and Sean Elliott almost beating the Portland Trailblazers in 1990? That team was coached by Larry Brown and one of his lead assistants was Greg Popovich. Imagine if the San Antonio Spurs had won that series against the Portland Trailblazers. They would have gone to the NBA Finals. Larry Brown might have been retained as a coach or given an extension. Instead, less than two years later, Brown was fired as head coach of the San Antonio Spurs, along with his entire coaching staff. 
Popovich left East Texas following Brown's firing and became an assistant coach under Don Nelson and the Golden State Warriors. Two years later, in 1994, the San Antonio Spurs would be sold to a group of businessmen from San Antonio for $85 million. The lead investor of the group would be none other than a man named Robert McDermott. That's right, the same Robert McDermott who was the dean of schools at Air Force when Greg Popovich was there and whose daughter was best friends with Aaron Popovich since the second grade. I mentioned earlier it was important to remember his name because he was going to come up again later in this story. Robert McDermott was appointed by President Dwight Eisenhower as the first permanent professor of the United States Air Force Academy. In 1959, he became the first permanent dean of the faculty, and then later became the dean of schools at the Air Force Academy. He wrote a number of books on finance and is regarded today as the father of modern military education. Following his time at the Air Force, McDermott ended up taking the job as the CEO of USAA Insurance. When McDermott took the position in 1968, USAA was the 16th largest insurance provider of private automobiles in America and ranked 15th in homeowners insurance. Under his 25 years in the position, USAA grew to the 5th largest insurance provider of automobiles and 4th largest homeowners insurer in the United States. And where was the company based? San Antonio, Texas. So McDermott ended up getting millions and millions of dollars as the CEO of an insurance company, which allowed him to be the person who bought the San Antonio Spurs in 1994. Who did McDermott hire as his general manager? Well, none other than Greg Popovich, of course. His daughter, Betsy, who's best friends with Aaron Popovich, advocated for hiring Greg as the general manager after McDermott took over the team, and she was instrumental in bringing Aaron and Greg back to the East Texas area. During his time as general manager, Popovich acquired Avery Johnson, traded for Dennis Rodman, and ultimately oversaw the season in which David Robinson won MVP and the Spurs came within two games of making it to the NBA Finals. After the injury to David Robinson during the 1996 season, Popovich fired head coach Bob Hill and named himself as the team's new coach. It took six years as an assistant at Air Force, eight at Pomona Pitzer, a one-year hiatus at Kansas, four as an assistant with the Spurs, two as an assistant with the Warriors, and four years as Spurs general manager. But Greg Popovich was finally an NBA head coach. Before we continue with the show here, just a few housekeeping points to bring up and a couple people that I'd like to thank. First and foremost, thank you to the people over at Pounding the Rock. It is the SB Nation San Antonio Spurs site. They've collaborated to help make this podcast possible. I've done all kinds of advertising there. 
I want to apologize to them because, of course, the podcast dropped episode one last week on the day of the DeJounte Murray trade. Just think that is impeccable timing, and uh, I just am sorry that you had to deal with that during that time. So thank you to them for all the continued support. I also want to give a shout out to Bet Online Sportsbook uh, because they've been sponsoring us on the Take It Easy podcast for close to like nine months now. Uh, if you download this episode on the Take It Easy podcast feed, I get paid for this. I don't care that much about getting paid for it. But it'd be a nice little pick-me-up if you do download there. If you're listening to this on the Fall of the Spurs Dynasty feed, make sure to leave a five-star review. Make sure to leave downloads on all the episodes. Follow so that you can get the episodes when they drop every Wednesday. Uh, If you're listening to this from the San Antonio Spurs Discord, uh, make sure to send me a message personally. Follow up on the link. I love your comments on what you think of the episode it's all very much appreciated that's enough plugging from me and obligatory thanks for all the people i'm just so grateful that this passion project gets to be made so with that being said let us return to episode two of the fall of the spurs dynasty between 1997 Greg Popovich's first full season as Spurs coach, and 2018, the final season with Kawhi Leonard, the Spurs won 50 or more games in every single 82-game NBA season. Greg Popovich missed the playoffs for the first time as Spurs coach in October of 2020. For two decades straight, the San Antonio Spurs were one of the five best teams in the NBA, and Greg Popovich surpassed Phil Jackson, Pat Riley, Chuck Daly, and his mentor and friend Larry Brown as the greatest coach in the history of the NBA. When creating a full episode on Greg Popovich, I wanted to discuss some of Popovich's leadership lessons. What was it that made Greg Popovich one of the great leaders in the history of sports? What was Popovich doing that his competition wasn't? And how will these lessons apply once we get into the story of Kawhi Leonard and the fall of the Spurs dynasty in 2018. Learning about Greg Popovich is an incredibly difficult task because, first of all, we know very little about Greg Popovich the person. Popovich never wrote books like John Wooden or Pat Riley. He never went on speaking tours like Phil Jackson. Popovich even famously said in one interview, quote, I'm just some guy coaching a basketball team. This is the greatest coach in the history of the NBA. One of the great leaders that we've seen in the arena of sports. And he was notoriously private. Some of the best information we can find about Coach Popovich comes from his former assistant coaches. The San Antonio Spurs spent years trying to protect their organizational culture from other NBA teams. The Spurs knew that eventually the NBA would evolve and adapt, they just weren't going to make it easy on them. The great irony of the San Antonio Spurs trying to hide information was that the information they were hiding was that it was important to be collaborative. Greg Popovich famously shared as much information as he could with his assistant coaches and wanted them to go on to succeed in other places. The famed NFL coach Bill Walsh rooted for his replacement in San Francisco, George Seifert, to lose as a means to protect his legacy. 
When Seifert won the Super Bowl with the 49ers, Bill Walsh unretired and began coaching at the University of Stanford. Everyone makes a big deal out of the fact that Bill Belichick's assistants never really amounted to anything, or the fact that Nick Saban's assistants have only won one time against him in their coaching careers. When it comes to Greg Popovich and the Spurs, he inspired a generation of the NBA's best and most successful coaches. The last four NBA Finals participants have all been coached by former Popovich players or Popovich assistants. Steve Kerr, the four-time champion coach of the Golden State Warriors, played for Popovich for four seasons and won two championships. Kerr still to this day regards Pop as his coaching mentor, and they talk frequently. When Popovich was named head coach of the 2020 USA Olympic basketball team, he named Kerr as his lead assistant coach. Kerr played the 2022 NBA Finals against the Boston Celtics, coached by Ime Udoka who spent two years as a player in San Antonio before spending seven years as an assistant coach on Popovich's staff. The year before, the Phoenix Suns, led by Monty Williams, who coached in San Antonio for four seasons, went up against the Milwaukee Bucks, led by Mike Budenholzer, who had been Popovich's lead assistant for nearly a decade and won three championships in San Antonio. Popovich's coaching tree also includes former Utah Jazz coach Quinn Snyder, current Sacramento Kings coach Mike Brown, current Memphis Grizzlies head coach Taylor Jenkins, current Las Vegas Aces coach Becky Hammond, and former Philadelphia 76ers coach Brett Brown. Some of the greatest coaches of a generation passed through the Spurs organization, and Popovich helped foster a culture in which information was shared amongst people and collaborated amongst one another. And Popovich inspired a dozen or so coaches to go on and have relative success in other places. So we're going to lean on these stories from coaches and former players to put together a picture of who Greg Popovich was as a coach. The story from 2013, which we started the podcast with, highlights what I believe to be one of Popovich's truest of core values. Popovich wants players to be fully human. Greg Popovich wanted to form loving relationships with people and took the time to listen to things that they had to say. In one-on-one interactions, people would talk about how Popovich would race through whatever it was he needed to tell people and then sat there and just asked them how their day was going or what was on their mind. He asked genuine follow-up questions and had an empathetic mind to what people wanted to talk about. This leads into the second point that I wanted to touch on with Popovich, which is how it's not about him, it's always about you. He was famous in shining the spotlight away from himself and placing it onto the organization. It was a we effort, not a me effort in San Antonio. And Popovich is the leader not just in voice, but also in example. Greg and Aaron Popovich lived a very quiet, private life. Aaron and the Popovich children were rarely spotted at Spurs games, although the children were both adults by the time Greg took the Spurs head coaching job. Even the longest tenured Spurs employees knew very little about their life. Three former Spurs executives detailed to ESPN how people on the coaching staff and offices only knew bits and pieces about Aaron's personality. During Popovich's coaching tenure, Aaron and Greg were heavily involved in charities and foundations in the San Antonio area. These included the Spurs Foundation, the San Antonio Food Bank, and the Innocence Project of Texas, 
which was working to overturn wrongful convictions. Inside the organization, players and former coaches remember how Popovich would take the time inside and outside the facility to listen and spend time and, and forge deep, meaningful relationships with people. Manu Ginobili remembers how, after one of the worst games of his NBA career, Popovich showed up to his house at one in the morning, bringing him a bottle of wine and just letting him talk. Monty Williams, now the head coach of the Phoenix Suns, spent eight years with the Spurs organization. Williams told ESPN about how these conversations with Popovich would often devolve into watching film, but it was because that was where the conversation had led them, not because Popovich had steered him in that direction. Popovich wanted to garner enthusiasm for the job. If those conversations turned to talking about basketball, well, he didn't have to ask Pop twice to talk basketball. But if he wanted to talk about life or philosophy or history or anything else, Popovich was there to listen and engage with people. In 2016, when Williams was an assistant coach for the Oklahoma City Thunder, his wife Ingrid died in a car accident, leaving Williams to care for their four children, aged between 7 and 15. Williams told ESPN before Popovich broke the all-time coaching record about how Greg was ready to fly to Oklahoma in the middle of basketball season just to be there for Monty in that moment. Williams hadn't coached with the San Antonio Spurs for nearly 12 years. He told ESPN, quote, I always thought he was misunderstood. If you watch those in-game interviews, you could be like, man, that guy's pretty rough. The way he cared for me during a tough time in my life told me everything I needed to know about him. When I was in Oklahoma City, he was hurt because I wouldn't let him fly up. I knew he had a lot on his plate. He's like, Mon, I'm getting on a plane to come. And I said, Pop, I'm good. I just got to figure this out. He kept telling me, Mon, you got to let people help you. It impacted me because I'd been around him since the mid-90s, and he'd been studying me. He knew that I was independent to a fault, and he knew the one person I trusted was gone. So in his mind, he kept trying to get that across to me. And I would get off and look at my phone like, why does he keep saying that? He cared enough to tell me the truth, and that's the thing that stuck out about our relationship. In a way, East Texas was the perfect place for Pop and the Spurs dynasty. The Spurs had one of the five greatest players in the history of the NBA, and most people didn't know what his voice sounded like. They had a coach who always shied away from the spotlight, and they played in a city where the only thing America knew them for was a basketball team. Sure, the NBA didn't like the fact that each of the Spurs' three championships in 2003, 2005, and 2007 were the lowest-rated television broadcasts of the last 15 years, or the fact that the Spurs were always viewed within the context of the Los Angeles Lakers. But the results were inarguable, and the fond memories people have of Popovich as an empathetic, loving figure speak for themselves. They speak for themselves, especially given how different all of this could have looked, given that Popovich was a white man born in the 1940s and who grew up with a coaching background based on the 20th century militaristic style. Coaching has undergone a major transformation over the last 50 years. For most of the 20th century, 
the predominant style of coaching sports was based on lessons of military training. In the 1880s, college football was invented as a way to teach the lessons of war to Ivy League men during a time without a major war in the United States. Coaching and teaching were jobs that former sergeants and military officials would take after retiring from service. Before 1990, the greatest basketball coach ever was a man named Bobby Knight. Knight led Indiana to the 1976, 1981, and 1987 national championships. Knight was famously a dictatorial figure with his players. He was known for yelling at players and referees and coaches, cursing into live microphones, and one time famously throwing a chair across the floor. Knight was notoriously harsh on his players, as if he were a general in the army, and sports were treated with the same life-or-death energy as war. He coached at Army for 10 seasons before he moved to the University of Indiana. One of his lead assistants was Mike Krzyzewski, who would coach Army from 1975 until he took the Duke head coaching job in 1980. Earlier in the episode, we discussed how between 1919 and 1974, military expansion was the major way the United States stimulated their greatest period of economic growth and led to the country becoming a global superpower. During this time period, the United States went back to back to back with World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. In 1973, the United States abolished the draft system, making all enrollment in the military on a voluntary basis. In 1975, the South Vietnam capital of Saigon fell, which marked the end of the United States' involvement in the Vietnam War. The United States would not engage in a major ground war again until 1990 with the invasion of Iraq that began the Gulf War. Over these 15 years, there was less of a need for a militaristic style of coaching. Instead, what evolved was an academic style of coaching. The best coaches were people who had almost all gone to higher education, and they had very occasionally served in war. By the time the 1990s rolled around, many of the players being coached had lived in a relative peacetime for nearly their entire lives. The models of success for coaching looked like Pat Riley, and Phil Jackson, both former NBA players who had gone to college, played on championship NBA teams, then immediately went into coaching after their playing careers. Coaching in the 21st century would look like Steve Kerr. Kerr's father, Malcolm, was the president of the American University of Beirut in Lebanon. Malcolm was assassinated in Beirut when Kerr was 18 years old, one year away from playing basketball at the University of Arizona. Kerr would go on to play 15 years in the NBA, win five championships, then serve as the general manager of the Phoenix Suns, work as a broadcaster for TNT, then became the four-time champion head coach of the Golden State Warriors. The academic style of coaching would make the militaristic style of coaching obsolete. This style of coaching was no longer an effective form of motivation, because those models of coaching did not reflect the current state of the world. In the 1970s and 1980s, Bobby Knight was the winningest coach in college basketball. As the world began to change around him, 
Bobby Knight would become the example of the coach who refused to evolve with the times. After the Hoosiers' 1987 championship, Bobby Knight only made the Sweet 16 three times, the Elite Eight once, and never made a Final Four again. In 2000, Bobby Knight was fired at Indiana University after 24 years, when video was released of him choking former player Neil Reed during an Indiana practice. His firing became a national reckoning of coaching models, a story that was not just discussed on ESPN, but also on NBC, CBS, and CNN. Was there still a place for this style of coaching and this style of leadership in a 21st century America? Greg Popovich first learned about coaching through the militaristic styles of the 20th century. Greg Popovich is also an avid academic. Greg Popovich is also someone who's very much in control of his emotions. And Greg Popovich is a very empathetic figure, someone who takes the time to listen to people and genuinely cares about their well-being. In studying Popovich and learning about his coaching style, I would argue that it's these four points that made Popovich one of the great leaders in all of sports. Popovich learned basic coaching fundamentals during his time at the Air Force Academy, continued to evolve and adapt to the modern times, and ultimately became the perfect coach to bridge academia and military and being an empathetic leader figure in order to get the best out of the people who followed him. I think it's why Popovich views himself first and foremost as a leader, and secondarily, if I may quote the man himself, some guy who coaches basketball. Greg Popovich was raised in the militaristic style of coaching, but he's also an avid academic. Manu Ginobili recounted to ESPN how Popovich would frequently ask players questions about history, math, politics, current events, and literature before he would mix in basketball-related questions. DeMar DeRozan, the player who got traded to San Antonio in a jack-in-the-box parking lot, remembers Popovich showing up for a film session, only for Popovich to show the team a documentary about penguin migration. Quote, It was basically learning about teamwork, how to come together as one and go after a common goal, whatever that goal was. I thought it was going to be a day where we watch film, but we watched a full penguin movie. And it was the most interesting shit. Looking at life from the perspective of the Penguins, that's some real pop shit. Any place Popovich could go to find inspiration, he would do it. Whether it came from reading books and recommending them to players, showing documentaries about Penguins, asking questions about history and strategy and all kinds of weird stuff. It was Popovich's way of keeping people engaged. It was different than the coaching style of, I want players who are singularly focused on basketball. There's a reason that Steve Kerr thinks of Greg Popovich as his mentor, and his inspiration for wanting to coach. He took the time to understand Kerr, stimulating Kerr's academic interest. Steve went on to win four championships as the coach of the Golden State Warriors, and many of his Warriors teammates have the same fond memories of talking to Steve about things outside of basketball. Kevin Durant recalls how, when Steve Kerr was coaching the 2015 Western Conference All-Star team, he walked in on Kerr and his coaching staff sipping cheap beer, talking about life, and it intrigued Durant because Kevin had never experienced coaching like that in his previous stops. 16 months later, 
Durant was joining the Warriors, and they'd make three consecutive NBA Finals. I'm not saying that those two things were correlated, it's just a story that Durant brings up when talking about his fondness for Steve Kerr. Having balance and having perspective worked because the shit was always getting done as well. And one of the hallmarks of Popovich's coaching ability was that Popovich was really good at being in tune with his emotions. Part of coaching moving towards a more academic style meant that academics were being involved in figuring out how to become a better coach. Barry Staw, a psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley, wanted to study what kind of halftime speeches motivated players to perform better in the second halves of basketball games. In 2015, he and his research team took 300 speeches from 23 different Bay Area coaches and determined which type of speeches were more effective in second-half basketball performance. Their research found that anger correlated with improved second-half performance to a point. Staw found that when anger levels reached what he called Bobby Knight levels, the anger stopped being effective in motivating people and actually worked to players' detriments. Popovich figured this out long before studies had been conducted to prove his points. Stephen Koblick, who was an academic advisor to the Spurs, once flew into town and stayed at Popovich's house to observe the team. He told Bloomberg News in 2018 about how, following a win, Popovich was unhappy with the Spurs' performance. He coached a lackluster game the next day just so that he could yell at the team. After hours of getting angry, he and Koblick returned to his house and Popovich flipped the switch off on his anger as soon as Koblick asked him to. Later that year, the San Antonio Spurs would win the 2005 NBA championship. Whenever Popovich made a comment to the media, famously being a prickly figure, it was done with intention. Popovich was in control of his emotions in a way that his predecessors like Bobby Knight were not. And because of that emotional maturity, Popovich was able to be an effective communicator with his team and it allowed Popovich to be interested in other non-basketball-related things while still commanding the authority of a head coach. So we know that Greg Popovich got his early coaching development in the military style of the 20th century, and his interest in academics helped him be a modern coach for the 21st century. And we know Popovich was able to relay those points by being in control of his emotions and by being an avid basketball nerd. The fourth and final point I wanted to discuss with Popovich's coaching legacy will probably be his most important once his career is all said and done. Popovich's capacity for empathy and for love. The story of Greg Popovich going from table to table following Game 6 of the 2013 Finals letting players exhibit their emotions following the worst day of many of their professional lives, that's empathy. And empathy is so powerful that Manu Ginobili, who spent 20 years around Greg Popovich, viewed that night as the fondest memory he had of Pop. Monty Williams' story about Popovich volunteering to fly to Oklahoma City in the middle of the season to be with Monty, 12 years after Williams had finished coaching with the Spurs, that's empathy. 
The concept of empathy and leadership is something that the famous organizational psychologist Adam Grant wrote in his best-selling book, Originals. Quote, To channel anger productively, we need to reflect on the victims who have suffered instead of focusing energy on the perpetrators. By activating empathetic anger, it gives us the desire to right wrongs. End quote. In 2016, following Colin Kaepernick's protest of police brutality by kneeling for the national anthem, Greg Popovich voiced his support for Kaepernick and denounced Donald Trump's statement that anyone who kneeled for the anthem should be banned from the NFL. At the time, it was very rare to see any leaders, nonetheless a white leader of a basketball team, voice support for Kaepernick. Kaepernick's lack of allies within the powership structures of the NFL were part of the reason why Kaepernick was blackballed from the NFL following the 2016 season. Just a couple weeks later at a Spurs press conference, Popovich called Donald Trump a soulless coward for lying about the fact that ex-presidents did not call families of fallen soldiers. After Trump was elected in 2016, Popovich continued to speak out on current events, speaking eloquently on issues of race, gender, sexuality, religion, and other pressing topics with the Times. Here was Popovich in 2018 talking about the importance of Black History Month. Well, I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, the league is uh, made up of uh, a lot of black guys. So to honor that and understand it is pretty simplistic. Uh, how would you ignore that? But more importantly, you know, we live in a racist country that hasn't figured it out yet. And it's always important to bring attention to it, uh, even if it angers some people. You know, the point is that you have to keep it in front of everybody's nose to understand it still hasn't been taken care of and we have a lot of work to do. In 2021, Popovich called out NBA owners, their politics, and which politicians they were donating to, which was a comment that went in direct opposition to the Holt family who owned the San Antonio Spurs and had made millions of dollars in donations to the Trump campaign over the previous five years. And following the Uvalde, Texas shooting just 30 minutes outside of San Antonio last month, Popovich had this to say, quote, I'm sick and tired of 50 and 60 and 70 year old white men screwing up our lives because they're selfish and really only care about nothing else but their position. This was a comment that was made while Greg Popovich himself is a 73 year old white man. Popovich, like many allies, sees injustice in the world and from a place of privilege wants to right the wrongs that are being done unto other people. It's a unique skill set to possess. Most NBA coaches know basketball. Greg Popovich knows basketball and knows how to be a leader. In 2020, Tim Duncan was elected into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. At Duncan's Hall of Fame speech, he spoke eloquently for 11 minutes about his sisters who, when his mother died when he was 14, became maternal figures for him. He spoke about his father, who died in 2002, and the sacrifices that he made to help him become an NBA star. Duncan spoke about his family, his college coaches, his NBA coaches, the Spurs owners, 
the Spurs general manager, the coaching staff, the trainers, all of his former teammates. He singled out Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili as the central figures who won four championships together. He thanked his wife and his children and talked about promises of a bright future. He spoke about all of the stories in his life and all of the important people he wanted to thank. And finally, he got to Greg Popovich. Holding back tears, Duncan waited until the very end of his speech to talk about the impact that Greg Popovich made on his life. I think that Duncan's one-minute speech talking about Popovich could have summed up everything I wanted to say about Popovich in about 26 less minutes. When we think of the San Antonio Spurs dynasty, it's Tim Duncan, Greg Popovich. Greg Popovich, Tim Duncan. Those are the first two names you think of in some way, some shape, or some form. These are two people who played nearly 2,000 basketball games together, spent two decades working side-by-side in the same offices. In these 90 seconds that Duncan has to speak on Popovich, you won't hear him mention a single one of those games or a single basketball moment. I think that that is the strongest lesson you can find about the character of Greg Popovich and the leader that he was. Sorry, Pop. Coach Pop. He's going to be mad at me, but the standard you set, you showed up after I got drafted, you came to my island, you sat with my friends, my family, you talked with my dad. I thought that was normal. It's not. You're an exceptional person. Thank you for teaching me about basketball. But even beyond that, teaching me that's not all about basketball. It's about what's happening in the world, about your family, um, just for everything. Thank you for being the amazing human being that you are. Thank you for stopping in to episode two of the fall of the Spurs dynasty. On episode three, we're going to discuss the life and career of Kawhi Leonard. Until next time, my name is Kyle Ledbetter. Take it easy.